0: We looked at the Ark of the Covenant. Remember that? The Ark of the Covenant was that oblong, uh, acacia wood chest, uh, about four feet by two feet, two feet high. And in that were the tablets of the, of the Ten Commandments. And then we saw on top of that, that gold plate called the mercy seat with the, with the cherubim. Remember that? Facing one another, their wings arched up in a beautiful arch. Facing one another, but facing down toward that mercy seat, the plate itself marveling at what would be placed there, and that would be the blood of atonement. Today, I want to look at the day at which that blood was put on that mercy seat. Once a year would be all it was. Once a year, the high priest would enter in to the Holy of Holies, pass that veil, and he would go in and he would put blood on the mercy seat. I want us to see that and what happened on the day of atonement because really... It's, this is familiar territory in what I'm going to say, but in my heart, the, the deeper these truths can go in us, the more we will be bold in our prayer life, the more you will be free to step out in mission and ministry, the more you will have the joy of the Lord. These, the truth I'm covering today is the rock that we stand on. When this is solid, when we understand this, everything else is built up. All the rest of our spiritual life can stand on this rock. But if this isn't strong, and there's something about life, and there's something about the devil, and even our own fears, I suppose, that undermine our confidence that we are truly forgiven and ransomed, and that our sins are forgotten, that our sins are forgotten, I talked with a young man not too long ago, a couple weeks ago, and he'd come, he'd come forward in a, in, a, in a particular ministry, and, and he said, I just have a hard time believing that God could possibly forgive my sins. And he, he didn't describe what they were, but he had been, I believe, a gang leader, and uh, he wasn't being—he wasn't being sensational in the slightest. In fact, he was very, uh, very cautious about what he said. You could just tell he wasn't kidding. He said, "He said, Pastor, you have no idea what I've done." And it was—it was said in a fashion that it almost made you shudder. And then I was able to say to him, "You have no idea what Jesus has done." And I began to describe for him what Jesus Christ had done and that his, the sin was paid for. It was already done. The, uh, the sins of all, all humanity paid for completely. And I said, that's what you must believe with all your heart. You must lay hold of it. And we had a powerful breakthrough. The Lord did a mighty, mighty work in his life and mine at the same time. So we're going right back to that foundation that we stand on, that rock, and letting God put our feet on it afresh today. Come, Holy Spirit, open your word and open our hearts to the word. We would have this precious seed implanted deep into the soil that it might bear fruit. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Sometimes God's grace may seem too good to be true. Our ears hear sermons and songs about his forgiveness, but doubts still linger in the back of our mind. Is that really the way God is, or are people merely telling me what they hope is true? Maybe these promises of mercy have been taken out of context and really don't mean what we think they mean. After all, it's hard to believe anyone could forgive and forget things as awful as the ones I've done. So as we look at the events which took place on the Day of Atonement, those doubts should be answered once and for all. Using very powerful symbols, God declared he would accept a substitute's death rather than punish those who repent and trust him to forgive. That day declared that their sins would be ransomed and carried away. And when we turn to the New Testament, we see that Jesus Christ was the one whom these, to whom these prophetic symbols pointed. The blood of bulls and goats was never intended to pay the debt of huma, the human's owe to God. They were meant only as symbols reminding Israel that a day was coming when someone would die and giving them the opportunity to hear and believe afresh. They became a focal point for Israel's faith, just as the bread and the cup do for us today. You realize that Israel was being taught to believe that someone would die. That's what blood means. Blood means somebody's died here. It's why the blood is applied to things. It's, a, it's an appeal to God saying, a death has happened to give us mercy. May your anger, may the death do me, be passed away for another has died in my place. That's why blood was put on things. It's an appeal to God for mercy. We have today symbols also. They were looking forward Someday, the seed of a woman would come and bruise the serpent's heel. Someday, there would be a fulfillment of prophecy. Someday, they would would know. Prophets longed to know who it was. What you know, as you sit here today, the, the prophet Isaiah would have given anything to know the things you know. You know the name of the Messiah. You know how he died. You know that he rose again the third day. You know that he's seated at the right hand of the Father. You know so many things they would have given anything to know. But by faith, they were laying hold and believing. The blood was being spilled. And they were trusting that someone would die for them and that God would show them mercy. And indeed, he would. As they put their faith in that, they were forgiven. Now today, we have symbols. We've got a cup full of red grape juice and it looks like blood. We've got bread broken up, and it's supposed to remind us of a broken body. We have symbols today, but we're looking backwards, aren't we? We're looking backwards. We're remembering that the Son of God has come. We know a lot about him. We know how he treated children and lepers. We know what he said and how, how he taught his disciples. We know how he spoke to his mother. We know so much about this one that we've all been talking about before, from the very beginning, from Adam's time, and we'll be talking about until we hear that trumpet call and we go up. Jesus Christ is the center of history. We're remembering today and letting our faith rise as well. What was the Day of Atonement? It was the most important spiritual event of the year in Israel's spiritual calendar. It was the tenth day of actually the seventh month, but it was really the first month because after the agricultural season, Rosh Hashanah is the new year, and so it's the new, ten days after Rosh Hashanah, the, the, the head of the year, they would have this day, this time of repentance. There would be a, a day of from sundown to to, to sundown of fasting, a Sabbath of thinking of their sins, of confessing them before God, of preparing their heart for the day of atonement, Yom Kippur. On this day, atonement was made for the entire nation. All their sins would be brought before God, and all their sins would be forgiven. Atonement, I use that word quite a bit, if you look at it, it's an English word that's compressed of three parts. At one meant. At one meant. Atonement. at-one-ment. atonement. We so, two parties that have been estranged are reconciled and brought to one again. They are brought back into one. When we've been atoned, that which separated us from God is removed. And we are brought back to God and made one with him again. We are atoned to him. The Hebrew, kafar, means to cover or pacify anger, to ransom by offering a substitute. It's the price of a life. It's the price. Someone has bought us out of slavery or bought us out of a death sentence. Another life has taken our place. We have been covered. Kafar. The blood has covered us, so we've been bought from death. By applying blood, people were saying, Lord, a life has been given in payment, so please spare ours. What took place on that day? If you're at Leviticus chapter 16... I'll read just a few verses. I'm not going to... The whole chapter really describes it and it would, you'd, you'd be benefited by reading it later. But I'm going to tell you it just in the interest of time. Verse 1 is interesting. It says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they had approached the presence of the Lord and died. Aaron had several sons. His first two were priests and particular and they had been immoral and they had offered, uh, they had just gone and gotten somebody's charcoal briquettes and put them in a pan and out of laziness and gone in and offered it before the Lord and the glory of the Lord flared up and consumed them. Moses and Aaron were told not even to mourn. They were not allowed to show any sign of mourning. They were to go on and it was quite the event. Now, So when you read that, what just happened, then it says this, verse 2, Moses, the Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark, or he will die. So in other words, Aaron, if you want to go the way of your sons, mess around here. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. And so, the Lord says, if Aaron's going to come into my presence, it's going to be on real special terms. Aaron was not a a great guy. Aaron violated the trust of his nation in one of the most grotesque ways imaginable. He led them into actual idolatry against the Lord. Called this vile golden bull uh, Yahweh uh, and said, basically, the sun god of Egypt was the god that had led them out uh, from bondage. It is inexcusable why he wasn't a, a grease puddle on the desert floor is beyond me. <laughs> he even lied to his brother when asked. Uh, so this is not the kind of man that walks into the, to the presence of perfect love uh, with that kind of, of thing in his heart and uh, survives. So he says he's going to have to do it real carefully. So here's what happened. First of all, Aaron would have to bathe. That'd be a good idea no matter what. And put on a simple tunic. Now, he's not going to wear all of, his, all of the fancy stuff. He's going to wear a simple, very humble outfit as he goes before the Lord. He will offer a bull in sacrifice for himself and his family to begin with. He's got to get his own himself covered with the blood before he even enters in, or he's not going to make it. He'll be struck dead. He then will take two huge handfuls of incense and put them in a fire pan. The coals will be from the altar the right coals, and he put the the, the the incense in this thing, and it is going to just billow this fragrant smoke. He then will go in behind the veil into the Holy of Holies, and he's really not even to look at the Ark of the Covenant, but let that place fill with smoke so thick he can't see it. God says, I, I want it to, I'm going to peer over the mercy seat, and I don't, I don't want Moses Aaron even looking at me. you know. He says, I want this covered. So the place will just be billowed with smoke to cover the Ark of the Covenant. And then he will come in and he, with the blood of the bull that's been sacrificed for him and his family, he will come in before the Lord and he'll walk up to the Ark through this cloud of incense smoke and he will dip his finger in the the bowl of blood and seven times he will sprinkle blood on the surface of that mercy seat with the cherubim beholding in amazement, knowing prophetically what this blood spoke of. He will splash it seven times and then he'll step back and then he'll splash the ground seven times with blood and then he'll go out. The next thing is to, two goats are brought. They're presented before the front of the tent of meeting, stand there, and then lots are cast to select which goat will be the goat of sacrifice and which goat will be the goat that is taken and led out into the wilderness. One is chosen. The one that is chosen for sacrifice is killed and its blood is gathered as well. And again, Aaron goes in, to the Holy of Holies, past the veil, and this time he goes as the high priest representing the entire nation of Israel. And he goes up to the mercy seat again, and seven times he dips his finger and splashes it on the surface of the mercy seat. Then he'll step backwards, and seven times he'll sprinkle the ground with the blood all the while calling upon the Lord for mercy and confessing the sins of his nation. And it specifies those three categories that I mentioned to you the other day. He will confess their rebellion. He will confess their deception. And he will confess their weakness. You know, some things we do, we know it's wrong. We're just plain old raunchy rebellious. Going to do this. Sometimes... We sin because the devil just fooled us. We're just idiots and we believed him and he deceived us and we did it. Other times we know it's wrong and all, but our weakness is so strong. The temptation's so strong, we're just overwhelmed. We're weak. And he will say, Lord, have mercy on us for our rebellion. Have mercy on us for our deception. Have mercy on us for our weakness. Forgive us, our God. And he'll confess it all before the Lord. Now, this mercy seat has declared that their sins are covered, ransomed. That a death has been given. Prophetically, they don't know really what it all points to. They know goat isn't going to die for them. But somehow blood will be given and they're going to believe that they'll be given mercy because of this. But something else, something very profound also happens. There's a second goat, if you recall. And this, uh, by the way, I didn't mention, not only then after, after this time in the Holy of Holies will he apply this blood, but he will go out and he will anoint the altar with blood. Both the bull and the goat will be smeared on the altar. Again, Lord have mercy on us and forgive the impurity that's been brought on these things. He'll go into the articles inside the holy place. I imagine the the lampstand and the table of showbread. He'll even put blood on the the very tent itself. And the Lord says, why? He he says, uh, verse 16, He shall make atonement for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel and because of their transgressions in regard to all their sins. Thus he shall do for the tent of meeting which abides... With them in the midst of their impurities. God says, just by having my tent in the middle of your camp, it's polluted. And it needs to be atoned for so I can stay there. It needs their blood, it needs to be blood cleansing it so I can even abide in your midst in that tabernacle. Now, then we come to that second goat. It's called a scapegoat, it's the, the goat of departure, it's, the, it's a goat that's led out. Uh, to Azazel in the Hebrew, a place, a goat that's led away. And Aaron, as high priest now, will lay both of his hands on the head of this goat and he will again confess all the sins of his nation. Rebellion, deception, weakness, confessing it all. It's for impartation, it's for identification. And so they are saying, Lord, we are, we are in effect one with this goat. It re- represents us. We should die. We should be led away. And then impartation. But in this case, it's a very negative impartation. They are imparting their sins, as it were, an evil blessing. They are blessing their, 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 their guilt and shame onto this goat. And then somebody has to lead this poor beast out, way out, you don't want it coming back, way out into the wilderness uh, where it will never find its way back and abandoning it in the wilderness. Then the person who comes back has to take a bath. There's somehow a, a, a spiritual uncleanness from having been with this, this, this goat. Aaron has to take his garments where he's been within the, in the Shekinah glory of God in the presence of the Holy Spirit. He has to take them off and leave them in the tent of meeting. He's not even to take them out, out, of, the, out of the compound. Leave them there. He takes a bath and then offers, himself, offers a burnt offering for himself and for the nation, which is a simple appeal for mercy. And then you've still got the remaining parts of this bull, the bones and the hide and stuff that hasn't been offered in sacrifice and of the, of the goat. And somebody has to take the parts, these carcasses, and they take them outside the camp, and there they burn them completely. And then the person who burns them comes back and again has to take a bath and clean his clothes before he's able to be part of their society again. What do we learn from this? What was being said on the day of atonement? Would you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9? Hebrews chapter 9. Now, even the first covenant, the old covenant that we've been talking about, had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary, the tabernacle. Well, there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one in which the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. This is in the tabernacle. There's a two courts we've talked about. And behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense in front of it. And the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold. And here, the author of Hebrews lets us know that inside that were, later on were kept not only the two tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments, but also a golden jar holding some manna, which was preserved, and Aaron's rod, which budded. And that's another story we might hear later. And above it were the cherubim of glory. They're on the mercy seat, overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail, for Steve Shell will have done it already. (laughs) So when these things have been so prepared... The priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle performing the divine worship. They're, they're changing the oil in the lamps and cleaning them. And they're changing the, the bread every Sabbath. Uh, so that there's fresh bread, 12 uh, uh, loaves of it, as it were. But into the second, only the high priest enters. Once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself, the blood of the bull that I mentioned, and for the sins of the people committed in ing- ignorance, and for that matter, rebellion and weakness. And the Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed, while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. He said, this, this would go on, and all this blood would be sp- Build, but people wouldn't feel forgiven inside. They wouldn't be able to forget their sin. The shame would still tend to linger with them. And so over and over again, these things had to be done in an appeal for mercy, but somehow inside, never getting the message, I'm really forgiven. I'm loved and I'm clean. It wouldn't come to the heart because it didn't have the power to do so. But then he goes on, verse 11. But when Christ appeared... As a high priest, okay, so now Aaron was really just a symbol of what Christ would do, of the good things to come. He entered the greater and more perfect tabernacle, meaning right into the very presence of God in heaven, not made with hands, that is to say not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, so it would be young bulls, but through his own blood, He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Okay. So now we see Jesus Christ in the role of the high priest, entering right into the holy of holies, and not with the blood of bulls and goats in a bowl, but with what? His own blood. In other words, this mercy seat always spoke prophetically of him. That that bull's blood and that goat's blood was simply a prophetic symbol that someday the Son of God would pour his blood, as it were, out before the Father and the cherubim would behold it. Those angels who stood around his throne beholding the Lord of glory, actually covering their faces from his glory, now looking down and marveling that that Holy One would allow these little creatures he had made to crucify him and tear his beard out and spit on him and drive a spear into his side, marveling at the blood they saw on the mercy seat, marveling at God's mercy beyond comprehension. And it is beyond comprehension, isn't it? It is beyond comprehension. You know, let me just point out for a minute, people will often say, you know, the Old Testament's full of law. It's kind of an angry, mean God. Then you get to the New Testament and you have his nice son. I want to hear the New Testament. I want to hear the mean old law of the Old Testament. I want to go back to the nice grace of the New Testament. Is, Is that ridiculous? Could you pronounce grace any more loudly? Than he's doing. If you were trying to tell this nation of two million people who've been slaves not too long ago in Egypt, and you're trying to teach them about mercy, could you do it any more clearly? What would you say? How would you do it? Here is this blood, and they're forgiven by the blood. But not only forgiven, not only forgiven, but remember what happened with the, with the scapegoat. Now their sins are taken and led into the wilderness where they are forgotten. He forgives and he forgets. David, who understood this so deeply, I believe the greatness of David is in this one, particularly this one point, David understood the mercy of God. When David sinned, he he ran to God, not away from him. Therein is the greatness of David. Would you turn with me to Psalm 103? I want to, let him tell us about this part of God's grace. I just love this psalm, so I'm going to read the first part of it for fun. Bless the Lord, O my soul, Psalm 103, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. And now he'll spell them out. Who pardons some of your iniquities. Oh, I've got a modern translation here. Who heals a few of your diseases. Thank you. Who redeems your life from the pit. That means the grave. He keeps you out of the grave. He keeps you alive. Who crowns you with loving kindness, his covenant promises, and compassion. Who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. And now, now, focus in. Here he goes. He made known his ways to Moses. Okay, so David's thinking of Moses and his acts to the sons of Israel. Now, it's, I, I, somebody's going to be alert enough to catch this next verse and know where it came from. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Who knows where you heard that? Yes. When, remember when... when uh, Moses said, show me your glory. The Lord says, if I come, if I show you my glory, I'll fricassee you like a bug, remember? People coming up after service saying, what's fricassee? (laughs) And uh, the Lord uh, Lord said, Moses, I'm going to hide you in this rock just to protect you. I mean, you'll literally be destroyed by my glory right now. So I'll cover you with my hand. I won't let you see my face as I come, but as I pass on by, I'll announce my name and you can see me kind of going away. And then the Lord came by and the Lord said, as he went by, the Lord, the Lord God, the Lord compassionate and gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, in loving kindness. Remember that? David's quoting that. David's going right there to that moment. When he heard it, he did it again. I just—I was doing a little bit of devotion last night before I went to bed. I turned to Psalm 145. He did it again. David's deeply aware of that moment when he, when the Lord spoke his name before Moses. And Then he said, "Let's go on, verse nine here. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities." For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness, his promised covenant love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. Would you read that verse 12 out loud, whatever version? As far as the east is from the west, so far he he removed our transgressions from us. Not only does he forgive, but he takes our sins and removes them from us as far as the east is from the west. In other words, they are led like that scapegoat into the wilderness and never brought back again. He forgives and he forgets. Say that. He forgives and he forgets back to that young man that talked to me who said, I, 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 I just can't believe he could forgive me. And he said, I, I, I can't forgive myself. I think That's another side of this equation we'll get to in one second. Can he forgive you? Is there a sin he can't forgive? Does he sort of say, well, I forgive you, but man, you are a turkey. Boy. I'm letting you in. I know I have to. I know I have to let you in. But you stand over there. Does he do that? You mean to tell me he totally forgets your sin? So that you stand before him totally clean and loved? Isn't that crazy? Jeremiah speaks these words, for I I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. I will remember no more. Back to Hebrews once more, chapter 9, and I'll be done. We left off at verse 12. Let's read, the next couple of verses. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, that was a sacrifice when you touched the dead body, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God? Now, notice what it will do. It will cleanse your conscience, not only God's memory, not only will God lead this beast out into the wilderness with your sins upon it, never to return, but it is also to cleanse our memory. That's what it means. It cleanses our memory and then the author of Hebrews tells us why. It will cleanse your conscience from dead works in order to serve the living God. You can't serve the living God until your conscience is cleansed. As long as you're hanging on to the old sins, as long as they hold you, as long as there's that shame and fear, you will never rise up in faith in your prayers. You will always figure you're you're lucky he doesn't strike you dead, and you'll never have the courage to lay hands and pray with any authority. The thought will come, why would he listen to me? Doesn't it? Come on. Doesn't it? Yes, it does. I'm looking for truth here. Come on. It does, doesn't it? You go to pray and you think, he's not going to listen to me. When we get a hold of this, when we understand what Christ has done, that struggle will always come. You go to minister, you go to pray, the thought will go, ah, he can't use me. And then you come right back to this, I am ransomed and I have had my sins taken away as far as the east is from the west. I don't fully understand how on earth he can do this, but I believe it. And therefore, I am a new creature in Christ. You say, well, was that just true up to the point I became a Christian and now all of the rest of this stuff is building up again? No. As long as I stand with my faith in Christ, as long as I trust in him, that blood continues to cry out on my behalf. And that scapegoat carries my sins away from me. Not only has God forgotten, but he's, His work is to cleanse our conscience from dead works so that we have the faith and the boldness to enter into the presence of God in prayer, to step out in ministry, and the joy of the Lord's fellowship, knowing he loves us even as we are. If you understand what I'm saying, you're going to become one of them fire-breathing Pentecostals. If you don't, you're going to become one of those neurotic churchgoers. She says, I've already been there. (laughs) I'm not kidding. This is it. This is why we keep going back to this. Because the devil and life and our own conscience somehow will keep trying to heap it back. Trying to heap it back. Building back into that shame. He can't forgive me. I can't forgive me. You have to. What it is is pride that says, I can't forgive me. You can't believe you were that stupid, but we all can. (laughs) Get over it. Of course you're that stupid. Welcome to the family of, of, of the human race. Okay? So the forgive, we, give our, we have to offer ourselves the forgiveness. But it's all built on Christ's forgiveness. If he has forgotten, if he has come with his spirit to cleanse my conscience from dead works, then I'm going to rise up boldly and lay hold of him in prayer. I'm going to rise up when he calls me to go on a mission team, I'm going to go. When he asks me to step into an area of ministry, I'm going to do it when he says begin to go serve him in such and such a way, I will step because Christ is at work. He's done this. I've been bought and my sins are forgotten and my conscience is cleansed before him. Whenever I take communion, that picture of the scapegoat is particularly dear to me. Isaiah 53 says that he not only bore my sins, But they also bore my sorrow and my sickness. And that's the scapegoat. Onto Jesus' great shoulders, I can put my weaknesses and my sickness and my sadness. I can lay it on his shoulders and he will bear it away from me, never to be remembered again. Today as we come, we have symbols too, just as ancient Israel did. And ours speak of blood, and ours speak of a broken body, great shoulders that bear our sin away from us, a blood that's splashed on the mercy seat, and we know his name, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, has entered into the heavenly tabernacle before the very presence of the Father. And he didn't just splash a little blood, he gushed it till I doubt there was much left in him. And the cherubim behold it and marvel. Holy Spirit, we ask you now, open our ears and eyes. Let us behold the Lord of glory. Let us behold the Lamb of God. Let us behold our high priest Who didn't offer the blood of bulls and goats, but his own life poured out for us. You who made us and have come to redeem us, we honor you. We bless you. And we thank you for taking our sin, not only covering it, but casting away from yourself its memory as far as the east is from the west and cleansing our conscience that we might in the joy of the children of God move forward in all that you have for us. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com that's life lessons com. there you'll be able to order many of the books pastor steve has written